Examining Ethics with Andy Cullison is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePauw University. On today's episode, we tried to answer the question, is it okay to kill civilians in war? As with all good questions in philosophy, it turned out to be a lot more complicated than we initially thought. We interviewed Seth Lazar on his book, Sparing Civilians, for help with this. He shared with us his own views. Spoiler alert, he doesn't think it's right to kill civilians. He also talks about some of the disagreement that philosophers have on what factors play into whether it's okay to kill someone or not. We discuss things like what it takes for someone to be a threat, what it takes for someone to be responsible for that threat, and how to weigh risking harm. Then later in the show, I sit down with our producers, Sandra Burton and Christian Weishart, to talk about some of the most provocative ideas raised by sparing civilians. Before we get started with today's show, here's a note from our sponsor. Oxford University Press has generously provided us the book that we are discussing on the show today. To find out more about Oxford University Press, visit them on the web at global.oup.com. Oxford University Press has kindly offered to provide you, the listener, with a 30% discount on Sparing Civilians by Seth Lazar. So to get a link for a 30% discount on this book, visit our show notes page at examiningethics.org. And thanks again to Oxford University Press for sponsoring today's show. I'm Christian Weishart, one of the producers of the show. I'm Sandra Burton, the other producer. Okay, so before we start, I just have to say, why did Seth Lazar have to write a book saying that civilians should be spared? Isn't it pretty obvious that civilians shouldn't be killed during a war? Isn't that like decent human rule number one? Yeah, that's what I thought too. Sometimes philosophers do this thing where they try to prove something that everyone kind of already knows, which is a valuable practice in itself, don't get me wrong, but that's actually not what this is. One of the first things Seth pointed out to us was that in the last 20 years, politicians have been speaking more brazenly and openly about killing civilians as a legitimate military strategy. During the Obama administration, we've launched eight times the number of drone strikes than we did under his predecessor. Right now, we have the executive branch making a claim that it has the right to kill anyone anywhere on Earth at any time uh, for secret reasons based on secret evidence in a secret process undertaken by unidentified officials. You have said you would, quote, carpet bomb ISIS into oblivion, testing whether, quote, sand can glow in the dark. Does that mean leveling the ISIS capital of Raqqa in Syria, where there are hundreds of thousands of civilians? What it means is using overwhelming air power to utterly and completely destroy ISIS. The terrorists, you have to take out their families. When you get these terrorists, you have to take out their families. They, they care about their lives. Don't kid yourself. Mr. But they Trump. say they don't care about their lives. You have to take out their families. Gosh, it's just so scary hearing so many people on multiple sides of the political spectrum saying things like that. Yeah, and they make answering this question kind of important. So some people try to fight against this kind of talk by arguing that killing civilians actually isn't effective, and therefore no one should do it. But according to Seth Lazar, that's not a great argument, because unfortunately, it's not really true. And to be honest, the, the evidence that I found was um, slightly discomforting, um, because you know, while it would, be, it would be great if killing civilians didn't work, 
Um, unfortunately, it looks like it often really does. In more recent years, um, there is pretty solid evidence that suicide attacks um, are militarily effective. Um, you know, the, the defeat, which we can probably call it a defeat, of the US and its allies in Afghanistan um, was in large part owing to the, uh, the no-holds-barred approach um, of, the, uh, of the Taliban. The notion that um, um, even if killing civilians were permissible, it would be kind of stupid, it would be irrational, um, I find to be wishful thinking. Um, it's kind of like the idea that cheats never prosper. So if killing civilians can, in some cases, be a good strategy in a war or battle, that makes me feel kind of hopeless. It feels like we'll never come up with anything good enough to convince people not to kill civilians. Yeah, it means that Seth Lazar has his work cut out for him. And it also explains why he had to write an entire book explaining why you shouldn't kill civilians. So what does he have for us? Well, we'll have to start at the beginning. Have you heard of just war theory? Sure. It's about things like what are good reasons to go to war and how a military should behave during a war. It's like a theory on what is just or good and unjust or bad in a war. Yeah. It's a huge topic that we could cover for a whole year. So if you want to learn more about just war theory as a whole, check out our show notes. But today we are just talking about this little piece of theory about whether it's okay to kill civilians or not. So the person who started the modern-day Just War Theory movement is a guy named Michael Walzer, who wrote a book in 1977 called Just and Unjust Wars. And he really shook stuff up. And it was incredibly influential um, among philosophers, for sure, but also um, in political science departments, among international lawyers, and in particular at the military academy. So it's had an extraordinary um, impact. So what did Walzer have to say about killing civilians? Well, he had this very basic idea that we all start out with the right to life. Okay, rights to life and rights to liberty. These are our most fundamental rights. Um, and in order for it to be permissible to kill us, then either these rights have to be overridden, so you have to achieve something sufficiently worthwhile to justify overriding the right, or we have to have lost the right in some way or other. We start out with a right to live, and because of this fundamental right, the only reasons it's okay to kill someone are... One, that killing that person will achieve something really big and worthwhile. Or two, that person has lost their right to life. Am I getting it right? Yeah. Okay, so what on earth would be a big enough achievement to override someone's right to life? Well, Seth explains what Walter meant by that. Intentionally killing innocent people who retain their rights to life could be permissible only if you're going to avert something like, you know, the Nazi takeover of Europe. Okay, and this is the only way you can do it. Oh, so the achievement has to be something like saving millions of innocent people from an unfair invasion or something like that. Yeah, the good that you would do would have to be extraordinarily large to allow this. Okay, now what about the other way it's acceptable to kill someone? That that person has lost their right to live. What does that even mean, losing your right to live? Well, one way to lose your right to live is if you pose a threat to others. Walter was really big on this idea of threat, and he thought that soldiers were the types of people who had forfeited their rights to live because they pose a threat. Soldiers, regardless of what they're fighting for, um, pose a threat to one another. They've made themselves into dangerous men, is the way he puts it. Um, and by posing a threat to someone else, you alienate yourself from your common humanity, was his sort of underlying idea. Um, and that's sufficient to make you lose your right not to be killed. 
And that's the, the crucial thing there is that soldiers, regardless of what they're fighting for, because they pose a threat to one another, lose that right. Oh, I don't necessarily like that idea, but I can see what he's saying here. So the important part of this is that because soldiers pose a threat, they lose their right to not be killed. Civilians, on the other hand, never give up their right to life under this way of thinking. So according to this theory, all soldiers have the right to be killed, and all civilians do not have the right to be killed, except in like special circumstances like preventing Hitler from taking over Europe. Exactly. Now, this is where things get hairy. Over the years, lots of people have responded to Walzer, and a lot of them disagree with his idea over who can be killed and for what reasons. So what do these critics say? They basically said if a soldier is just trying to defend her home from an invading army, why has she given up the right to life? Um, so putting it in terms of, you know, bad guys and good guys, it's kind of how, how it's viewed. It's, you know, the, the good guys don't forfeit their rights to be killed just by defending themselves against the bad guys. Uh, I can totally see how that's a problem. Yeah. But there's another serious problem for Walter's view about soldiers being threats. Seth points out that sometimes soldiers aren't even a threat to others. There's a lot of research about firing rates in, in armed conflicts that suggests that the large majority of people who are in a position to use their weapons don't actually do so. This is true even in the Second World War. There's famous research by um, SLA Marshall which suggested that, between, that only 15 to 25% of American soldiers in the Second World War who could have used their weapons did so. Oh, man. According to this research, most American soldiers in World War II were not threats. Right. And we have no reason to assume this just applies to Americans, by the way. So the critics are bringing up two main issues to think about. Are the soldiers part of a just or unjust conflict? And two, are the individual soldiers responsible for the threat that the army itself poses. So a soldier may not be responsible for the threat that his army poses because he's, for example, not firing his weapons. And man, what about soldiers who were drafted who might not have even wanted to take part in the first place? Um, when you actually look at most contemporary militaries, especially if you think about the ones that are largely conscript armies that involve lots of draftees, most soldiers are not responsible to any significant degree for the threats that they pose in war. They're typically um, acting under significant coercion, significant duress. Many of them don't actually pose threats themselves. They may in indirectly contribute to the threats posed by other people. Seth actually has an analogy to help explain this. If someone else stuffs you in a cannon and launches you out, you are a significant threat. Your body can hurt people this way. But you are not responsible for that threat because someone put you in that cannon and launched you. You are just the projectile. Okay, so let's recap. Part of Walzer's argument is that all citizens should be protected under almost every circumstance and that all soldiers have a right to be killed because they are a threat. But then a bunch of other just war theorists get to thinking about that cannon analogy and they're now arguing that it's not really about the threat, it's who is responsible for that threat that really matters. And whether you're on the side of the good guys or the bad guys. Exactly. So as you might imagine, this complicates things quite a bit. All of a sudden, according to some just war theorists, it's no longer okay to kill a huge portion of soldiers. Yeah, and it seems like if it's just responsibility that's the focus, even civilians could be considered responsible for a threat. Right. So according to Seth, we've kind of hit a wall. At this point, 
we've got two options. All right, one way is you just say, look, if we agree with Walzer that it's only permissible to intentionally kill people who have lost their right not to be killed, unless you're averting you know, the Nazi takeover of Europe. So if we agree with that, uh, and we think that lots of soldiers aren't sufficiently responsible um, for the, the unjust wars that they're part of um, to be liable to be killed, then we've got to say that most ordinary armed conflicts um, involve impermissible killing. Okay, in other words, we have to endorse a kind of pacifism or something very close to pacifism. But Seth doesn't think that pacifism is very realistic. So here's a second option. So the alternative is that you have to think, well, okay, how much responsibility is really required for someone to be um, liable to be killed? Uh, maybe it doesn't matter if they don't contribute much causally. You know, maybe these sort of little marginal unnecessary contributions are enough. Maybe it doesn't matter you know, that they're not guilty, that they don't really know what they're doing, that they're acting under duress. Um, as long as they're acting voluntarily, as long as they know the risk that their actions might contribute to an unjust threat, maybe that's enough to make them liable to be killed. Okay, so you, what you do is you lower the threshold of responsibility that's required to make someone liable to be killed. I see. So if you say all it takes is a little bit of responsibility to make it okay to kill you, then that kind of covers most soldiers. Right. But unfortunately, this lower responsibility also covers a lot of civilians. Then many, many civilians are going to be liable as well. They're going to be responsible enough, uh, partly because they contribute to war-related industries in which, you know, in the U.S., approximately 25% of people work in industries that are to some degree um, connected with the military. That's on, based on research by Alexander Downs. Or it could be just from the fact that we vote and pay our taxes. Um, it can be from the public support that we provide for, for war. Um, there are loads of ways in which civilians make these very small contributions um, that they know have a risk of contributing to a wrongful threat. Um, and that on this view would be enough to make them liable to be killed. So if you add this all together, this clear boundary between civilians and soldiers has gotten very, very blurry. A civilian can be just as marginally responsible as say, a soldier who never fires her weapon which is exactly what Seth Lazar is trying not to let happen. Okay, so then how does Seth make the claim that civilians should not be killed? Well, first, he makes it clear that this low threshold for responsibility has got to go. And my basic approach is to say, okay, so broadly speaking, um, I agree with recent just war theorists about what it takes to lose one's right um, to life. You know, but I think that, um, you know, I opt for the kind of the high threshold approach. You know, I say that in order for you to be liable to be killed, you have to be responsible to a degree that makes that kind of fate appropriate for you. There has to be some degree of fit between what you've done and the fact that you've lost your most fundamental right. So you have to be responsible to a significant degree. So this is going to mean then that very few civilians are liable to be killed, which I think is exactly the right result. Um, but it's also going to mean that a lot of soldiers um, are not liable to be killed, even if they're fighting for an unjust war. So the only way to protect civilians is to say you need to have a high level of responsibility for a threat before you lose the right to not be killed. Yeah, but this also makes it morally wrong to kill a soldier who does not have a high level of responsibility. Like, say, that same soldier who never shot her weapon. Seth's challenge is to prove that killing an innocent civilian is worse than killing an innocent soldier. 
that sounds like something that would be so difficult to prove, especially after all the stuff we've just talked about. So Seth comes up with some arguments to say that killing an innocent civilian is worse than killing an innocent soldier. One piece of that is that you should never treat a human being as a tool. Right, so that's Kant's idea of you, mustn't treat, you must never treat people as a mere means. You must always treat them also as ends in themselves. Go treat people as though they're part of the kingdom of ends. It's another way of putting the same idea. Uh, so using people as a means to bring about some bad result involves an especially objectionable kind of disrespect towards that person. You're treating them just like a resource in your puppet show. I can agree with that. But how does this idea relate to killing civilians? He actually gives the example of the beheading of journalist Daniel Pearl in 2002. But what kind of strikes me about that is the way that, you know, the people who murdered Daniel Pearl, um, they used him as a, as a tool in their horror show. They used him as, a, as a, a board to inscribe their message to the world, to sow dissent and confusion and chaos in the world. Um, he was just a means for them. Um, they had no respect for him as a human being. Um, he was just being used in this way that is so deeply objectionable. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why we find those kinds of murders to be so, just so paradigmatically evil, because you're treating somebody as though they're a prop, um, a resource for you to use. So he calls these opportunistic killings, like when you kill to achieve a climate of terror or to send a message. This is in contrast to what he calls eliminative killing, like when someone is trying to kill you and you kill them first. That kind of killing doesn't feel like you were using that person as a mere tool. And as Seth states in his book, by killing someone attacking you, you are merely removing a threat that wouldn't have been there in the first place had that person not been there. To Seth, this is a much more permissible reason to kill someone. I get that part of it, but doesn't killing enemy soldiers for military gain feel opportunistic too? I mean, usually killing soldiers is one of the ways that generals gain military victories. So doesn't that go against what he says? According to Seth, from the perspective of the generals or whoever is making the strategic decisions, this may be true. But Seth is focusing on who is actually doing the killing. In most wars, it's really just a lot of soldiers killing other soldiers. So from the soldier's perspective, it still falls under eliminative killing, which he claims is much less morally wrong. All right, folks, grab some popcorn. We're going to do another recap. So critics of Michael Walzer argue that when you're thinking about killing, you have to think about more than just whether or not a person is a threat. You also have to think about whether that person is responsible for the threat they pose. Remember that canon analogy. So these arguments turn out to be a problem for Seth Lazar. So he's sitting here trying to prove that we shouldn't kill civilians. And these arguments are floating around that make it seem reasonable to kill civilians because a lot of them might have some sort of responsibility. They might own stock in an arms company, for example, which means they have some level of responsibility in a conflict. So in order to make his argument that civilians should be spared, he had to add some stuff to these criticisms of Walzer's just war theory. And we've already mentioned one of the things he's added, the thing about opportunistic killing, which is one way to treat people like a means to an end. Now here's the final piece of Seth's puzzle. Risk. 
He says that if you kill a civilian, you're taking a bigger risk that you're killing someone innocent. Likewise, if you kill a soldier, it's less of a risk that you're killing someone innocent. If all you know about two potential targets is that one is a soldier, one is a civilian, then it's more likely um, that the civilian is innocent. It all comes down to risk. If you kill somebody and in your action you take a bigger risk of killing an innocent person, then you wrong that person more gravely if it turns out that they were in fact innocent. Okay, and this I think is a very basic idea that, um, that we have in ethics that, you know, it doesn't matter only how you treat people, it also matters um, how you, sort of your, your actions actually affect them. The risks that you take with respect to them also matter, and they matter independently. So what he's saying is that killing a person who still has their right to not be killed is a harm you've caused that person. And taking a risk with a person's life, or in other words, not being sure whether a person is innocent or guilty, but killing them anyway, is a second separate harm. Right. But can you explain why this risk is a separate harm? So what if the person is guilty, but you just weren't sure about it? Well, Seth said, if you don't know that they are guilty, if you're unsure, the risk you take with their life is actually a lot like using them as a means to an end. And the other reason that taking a risk with someone's life is its own separate harm is that it doesn't just endanger or hurt that one person. It endangers everyone around that person, too. What do you mean? So we all have the right to survive, but also we have the right to not feel threatened. You know, it's not as good to survive walking on a knife edge as it is to have a, um, a good solid land to stand on. And I think when you expose others to risks of avoidable wrongful harm, you're undermining their security. So you're undermining the separate interest they have in not being subjected to these kinds of risks. So by taking a risk with one person's life, you've undermined the security of all innocent people around them? Yeah. It reminds me of police shootings. When police kill an unarmed black man in the street, it doesn't just harm that one man. It also harms the entire black community who feel that they could be killed just as easily without posing any threat. When you take a risk and kill someone who might be innocent, you make the entire community feel unsafe. So ultimately, riskier killings are worse than less risky killings. But then couldn't you have a situation where you have a civilian that you know is guilty and a soldier that you're not sure whether or not he's guilty? Um, wouldn't it be less risky to kill the civilian? Yes. But Seth has a different argument to say that killing soldiers is always better than killing civilians. He basically says that all soldiers, every single one, has taken a risk with other people's lives. So again, you're taking a risk. You know, I think that as between people who have gambled with others' rights and those who haven't, if you're going to harm one of those groups, you should harm the gamblers. Um, because I think that you know, showing proper respect for other people's rights means not just conforming to them as things actually turn out, um, but it means respecting them across a range of possible scenarios. So there you have it, Christian. My brain is mush right now. Me too. Let's have a nice sponsor message and a music break before we get into our discussion. Good idea. Sparing Civilians by Seth Lazar is available from Oxford University Press. To find out more about Oxford University Press, visit them on the web at global.oup.com. 
Oxford University Press has kindly offered to provide you, the listener, with a 30% discount on sparing civilians. Visit our show notes page at examiningethics.org to get that 30% discount. And thanks again to Oxford University Press for sponsoring today's show. Christian, Andy, and I thought that Seth Lazar's view was fascinating. And we really got attached to this idea of responsibility. A question we kept coming back to was what responsibility do civilians who live in a democracy have for the threats their government poses abroad? Do we, as citizens of the democracy of the United States, have more responsibility for our government's foreign threats than, say, civilians living under a monarchy, for example? So we decided to sit down and hash this out. Um, I, I think we do. I think we do have more responsibility than someone in a monarchy. Um, but I think we should make a distinction between being like just causally responsible for something and morally responsible. Uh, you can cause something, but if you're not aware of the fact that you caused it, or if you're not aware of how much harm it might cause, it'd be weird to think that you should be held morally responsible if I accidentally push you down the stairs versus knowingly pushing you down the stairs. And so I think um, in a democracy, arguably, we're a little bit more causally responsible for the wars that our country wages, but I still think it's going to be an open question of to what degree are we morally responsible. I guess I think that if we're not more if we're not morally responsible then i don't see what the point of our democracy is we're told that we have a responsibility to vote because we have an impact on what our country does and so if then we get to cop out and say we actually don't we didn't affect what happened i think it's yeah it sounds like a cop out to me i think that's actually a really good point um so one of the arguments for a democracy is that it's the best way to ground political legitimacy. What gives the president or a Congress the right to do anything is supposed to be explained by the fact that we put them there, right? We caused them to be there and basically assented to their governance. And so I think it's a good point to say, well, wait a minute, how can you, how can you say you're responsible for the leadership in a way that grounds political legitimacy, but not for the wars they're cause. I take it that's your Yeah. Question. So I think one thing you could say is the reason political legitimacy gets grounded um, is because we put the people there. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we are in any robust way morally responsible for every single decision that they make, right? We could put somebody there, uh, because we trust them in general to do things that we want them to look out for. But if they start going off the deep end or doing other kinds of things that we object to, um, you'd be hard pressed to say that you're causally or more, well, that you're morally responsible for every single decision that they make, um, but you could still maintain that they have legitimacy to be acting on your behalf. I think I, I agree with that. Um, but my issue then is that there are some things then that you are responsible for. So like if there's a presidential candidate who says that they will carpet bomb Syria, for example, or if there's a presidential candidate that says that they're going to go to war somewhere, then 
you if you elect them or if you vote for them, then you are like you are definitely responsible, at least. Well, I, I would say morally responsible for that action. So I want to I want to put a pin in that. So 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 we're kind of saying that there are if you vote for this presidential candidate that wants to go to war and then that presidential candidate goes to war, like you're responsible for that in some way. But what about the people who don't vote for that person? So what if I know that, um, like, you know, um, I knew that George Bush was a hawkish politician. He wanted to go to war. I knew that. Um, and that was part of the reason that I decided not to vote for him. So am I responsible? Am I, because I, I still live in this democracy, like, am I still responsible for, you know, the Iraq war? This is so... Oh, this is so tricky because it it seems wrong. It seems just as wrong to me to say, you know, everybody in the democracy is equally responsible for everything. But I also, it just doesn't seem right to say that only those people who voted for that president are responsible. And how would you even figure that out? Um, so if we are saying that somebody has to be responsible in a democracy, who is it? Is it the particular number of people that voted for that politician and that politician? Is it everybody who lives in that democracy, including the people who didn't vote for that politician? I, I think I would say it was everybody, even who didn't vote for that politician. Um, because you never know how your actions are feeding into a culture of war. So, like, we don't know the aspects of our culture that produce the desire to go to war in the first place, let's say. So, like, I don't think it's okay to just separate the people who voted and didn't vote from responsibility. And I think there's also something interesting. Like, we're mostly talking about citizens in terms of the average citizen like you and me who has no political power other than the right to vote, basically. But there are citizens that have way more responsibility than that, right? So, like, there's responsibilities are congressmen and senators and stuff like that. So they obviously would have a ton more responsibility. And then even further, let's say you have a company that benefits greatly from going to war. Like, you have an arms company. Then I think the arms company is more responsible than than the average citizen who doesn't have any of those links. And I think this is why it's actually important to think about different kinds of responsibility, like causal responsibility, moral responsibility, um, but also responsibility in terms of just being sort of an enabler. So um, your average, like your average person who doesn't vote for whatever the politician is who takes us to war. Um, there's an interesting question of if you live in a free and open society that's a deliberative democracy, you know, did you do anything to persuade people not to? Did you participate in the political process in a robust way? Or did you just sort of sit back and, and let things happen? And you might think if, um, if b between two people, one who didn't vote for the person who took us to war and one who didn't vote, but also saw the writing on the wall and was like, hey, you know, everybody wake up. Like there's there's something here to be seriously concerned about and you ought think twice before voting for this person. Um, I think the person who uh, did that is in some sense less responsible 
than the person who just simply failed to vote for that person. Yeah, because that's something we have to think about, especially when we're talking about the United States, because a significant portion of the population does not vote for a number of reasons, because they're five, because they're felons, because they don't want to, because they don't have time. I mean, a significant, you know, because they're just opting out on purpose, right? Like a ton of people in America do not vote, right? So um, so I think it is something important to think about, right? Um, the degree of responsibility for, for all the people. And, and that's also, that's the degree of responsibility is important here too, because um, while I think the person who is politically active and actively tries to persuade people not to vote for a certain person who might take us to war, um, I think their degree of responsibility is very, 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 very minimal, right? And, and in part because I can easily see people not participating in the political process because they feel like it's just going to be screaming into the wind, right? Like, why bother? And, and I, I get that. Um, but pr precisely because people think they could be so causally ineffective, I think that's another reason why we need to be careful about just how responsible do we think they really are. Like if you if you believe of yourself that I have no power to do anything about this, why bother? Why not spend my time, you know, on my other pursuits or on my children or something like that? Um, I think that th that has to play into uh, judgments about people's responsibility. The depressing thing about all of this, and the thing that surprised me the most, was that Seth Lazar even had to write this book at all. It just seems like common sense to say that we shouldn't kill civilians. But given our current political climate and the conversations around it, I guess it is a necessary thing. Yeah, it definitely seems like it is. I think I surprised myself with how quickly I felt like the only answer was pacifism in this. Because if soldiers are sometimes not responsible, and most of the time not even threats, then I kind of just give up on this whole system we have going on right now. The thing I kept going back to was something that came up in our previous episode that had to do with um, thinking about moral issues when there might be a lot of fear involved. Uh, because I think when there's fear involved, it's more important to pay close attention to the moral arguments. Uh, because when fear is involved, it'll be tempting to not think very carefully about those arguments. to hear from you for an upcoming episode. We want to know how you think about the ethics of voting. And just to be clear, we're not so much concerned with who you're voting for, although if you really want to tell us, you can. We just want to know what you think about voting itself. So please call us at 765-658-5014 and leave a one to three minute voicemail and tell us how you think about voting. And we promise this is definitely the right number. If you don't know where to start, you could tell us. Do you think everyone should vote? Do you think it's okay to vote for someone you know has no chance of winning the election? What do you think about people not voting because they don't like any of the candidates? That's just some stuff to get you started. 
We're interested in anything you think about how people should vote in our version of democracy. Again, the number to call and leave a one to three minute voicemail is 765-658-5014. You can find these instructions on our social media as well. Thanks so much. We can't wait to hear from you. you all can do if you like what you're hearing from us, or if you feel like you're getting something from our show, is to tell a friend about us. Word of mouth really helps. You can also help us out by rating us on iTunes, even if you don't use iTunes to listen to the show. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, visit our show notes for this episode at examiningethics.org. When you visit, be sure to sign up for our newsletter you'll be entered into our monthly book giveaway. For updates about the podcast, interesting links, and more, follow us on Twitter at Examining Ethics. Hi, this is Christian with the credits from the Greenhouse of Starbucks. Examining Ethics with Andy Collison is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Sandra Burton and Christian Weishart produced the show. Our logo was created by Evie Brogius. Our music is by Corey Gray, The Blue Dot Sessions, Jason Leonard, and Kai Engel and can be found online at freemusicarchive.org. Examining Ethics is made possible by the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. No? That was good, except that you laughed when you said and, because you were laughing about... <laughs> War! <laughs> Dad's distraction! <laughs> okay. Okay. Can should I just do that whole thing? Is I think you're good from the end. Okay.